pray together. Father, we pray that your word would work in our hearts and cause us to understand what you're doing, to understand how the scriptures work. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you. We ask that you would accomplish these miracles in our hearts by the power of your word as the Holy Spirit works among us in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I would invite you to open uh, this morning with me to Micah chapter 5. And in a way, we're just going to look at one verse, but in another way, we're going to look at the whole book of Micah and think about how this one verse, Micah 5.2, that is quoted in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to think about how that, that verse fits in the broader um, book of, of Micah as a whole and, and how it informs us about um, the way that the Lord was preparing his people for the coming of the Savior. So to begin, I'd like to just read Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and then we'll begin to think together about it. So Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So I want to think with you this morning, I want to start to think with you this morning about what Micah's prophecy would have meant in Micah's own day and how, how Micah's people would have heard this prophecy and, and how, they, how they might have responded to the preaching of Micah in general. Um, and, and so to get at this, uh, let's, let's get just a flavor from what Micah says about what the times were like. And I'd like for you to look with me at Micah chapter 6 and verse 16, where he says to his contemporaries, you have kept the statutes of Omri. And Omri was, if you remember from reading the book of Kings, Omri was one of these wicked kings of Israel. And so this is not good. And statutes is one of those words that appears when we talk about the Lord's rules and statutes and commandments and laws. So Micah has phrased this statement in such a way that his, his audience would probably think of the statutes of the Lord, and then it's like he slaps them in the face because he says, you've not kept the Lord's statutes, you've kept Omri's statutes. And then he continues, he says, you have kept the statutes of Omri, And all the works of the house of Ahab, and then as I read these next words, you think about what this reminds you of, and have walked in their counsels. What does that sound like? You have walked in their counsels. I think it sounds like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And it's like Micah is saying, probably assuming the knowledge of Psalm 1 among his audience, probably saying, you've not walked like the blessed man of Psalm 1, you've done exactly the opposite. And then if you, if you just drop your eyes a little down the page, look at what he says in Micah chapter 7, uh, verse, 
Verse 2, he says, the godly has perished from the earth. There's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Now, now think about what he's saying here. He's saying that people are not looking for ways to bless others. They're not operating on love for God and love for neighbor. Rather, they're lying in wait for blood, meaning that they're, they're looking for ways that they can ambush their neighbors, their contemporaries, the people that they do business with. They're looking for ways that they can take advantage of them at the expense of those people. And then he says in verse 3, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. So these are people who are cultivating skill at doing evil. So it's a dark time. Micah was prophesying probably around 700 BC. And I suspect that, that, that if we thought about it as we think about our own day, we would look for a great revival in Micah's day. Because if you, if you think about the situation in, in Israel, you've got Isaiah preaching You've got Micah preaching. You've got Hosea, who's a contemporary of these guys. I mean, these are are prophets of the Lord who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if I'm looking at them on the scene, I'm thinking something great is about to happen in Israel. And it's true, something great is about to happen, but not like I'm thinking. You see what I'm saying? What's about to happen is an enemy army is about to come and destroy the nation. And a whole, a whole wicked nation is about to basically turn a deaf and hardened ear against the prophets of the Lord. And they're going to reject those, those prophets. Now, there'll be a small faithful remnant that will believe those prophecies and will embrace everything that these guys are saying. But where they're going is exile. They're not going toward revival. They're not going toward reformation and renewal. Things are about to get a lot worse so I, the reason, one of the reasons that I think it's useful to, to draw your attention to these things is because Micah's generation is facing exile. Look back at Micah chapter 1. Look at what he says in verse 9 about, about the nation of Israel. He says, her wound is incurable. They have an incurable problem in them. It's the problem of sin is, will become clear as you go on. Look down at the the last verse of of Micah chapter 1, verse 16. He says, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. Now, the reason he says this is because when that enemy army comes and takes them into exile, this is one of the ways that they treat the captives. They shave people's heads to shame them, to, to dishonor them. And he says, go ahead and do this to yourself. And then he continues, for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bald as the eagle, for they, the children of your delight, shall go from you into exile. This is exactly what we read about in the opening uh, chapter of the book of Daniel. These, these young men who are, they're, they're, they have no blemish, they're capable. When the enemy army comes, I mean, you know, we can... We can make this personal. It would be like some enemy army taking control in our land and plucking out people like my kids and the Osterling's kids and, and the Birch's kids, just plucking these kids up and taking them off. They shall go from you into exile. That's what happened in Daniel's day. So they're facing exile, and the nation is going to be destroyed. 
And at this point, let me, let me draw your attention to what Micah says that is supposed to be future hope. So, so, you know, I'm inclined to come to a prophecy like this and think, well, Micah is going to minister the Word of God in his generation in a way that's going to be immediately beneficial to the people of his generation. And that's what we expect, isn't it? That's what you guys expect from me. He's going to come and he's going to minister the word in a way that's going to be immediately applicable. It's going to make my life better right now. It's going, to, it's going to turn things around. We're going to have revival and reformation in our day. That's what we hope for. Look at what Micah says. He, he says, look, you're going into exile. Judgment's going to fall. And look at, look at chapter 2, verse 12, where the Lord says through Micah, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. Now, this language of gathering the remnant, this is language that, that is like, I'm going to scatter you, and then I will gather you. That's, that's the context in which this language fits. So what Micah is, this is just another indication. You're going to be scattered among the nations, and then after that driving away, the Lord is going to regather his people. So if you're understanding what Micah is saying, he's saying something like this. We're looking at a decades, perhaps centuries-long process here. We're facing immediate judgment in the short term. And then once the judgment is over, I don't know when it's going to come to an end. But eventually, the Lord is going to regather his people. And then he continues in verse 12. He says, I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Verse 12, he who opens the breach goes up before them. And, you know, we didn't read this passage earlier in, in the service, but there's a passage where there's someone who, who made a breakthrough and it's, it's in the narrative of the birth of Perez. That's actually the word that's used here, he who opens the breach. If you remember the narrative of the birth of Perez and Zerah in Genesis 38, this, this young man, Perez, he was, he was being born at the same time as his brother, and he made a breakthrough, and he was born, and eventually through his line, David was born, and then promises are made to David about the future king. And so what Micah is doing is he's using language that recalls earlier things from Scripture, which he'll continue to do all through this prophecy. He's using language that recalls earlier events of Scripture to point to things that are going to happen in the future. So when he speaks of the one who opens the breach before them, people's minds would go to Perez and Zerah and the line of descent of the hope for Messiah. And then look at what he continues to say here in verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, they break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord, and notice the Lord there is in those small caps, which means this is Yahweh, at their head. So Micah refers to Perez and Zerah and the hoped for, the, the hoped for future king from that line of descent. And then when he says they break through and pass the gate, he uses the same word that's used to refer to the Passover. They break through, Perez, line of descent, and pass over, coming out the gate. And then when it says their king passes on, there's that Passover word again, he, he, they pass over before them. So that's going to bring to people's mind the exodus from Egypt. 
So it's like Micah is suggesting, and I think this is what he's suggesting, we're looking for that future king from that line of descent, and he's going to do something like the exodus from Egypt for us. God is going to save us in the future in a new exodus the way he saved us uh, from Egypt, and this is going to come after exile. This is what, this is what uh, Micah is saying. Meanwhile, meanwhile, as they hope for this return and this restoration, meanwhile, you have, you have guys who are frustrated with Micah. You have people at large who are frustrated with this kind of prophecy. And the reason they're frustrated is because they don't want to be told that they're sinners. And they don't want to be told. They don't want to be bothered with the knowledge of the coming wrath of God in the form of the exile from the land. They don't think that's relevant. And they think that Micah's prophecies are, they want something that's going to apply to their lives right now. They want, they want immediate help. And, and Micah quotes them, essentially. Look at Micah chapter 2, verse 6. He says, and, and you can see there are quotations around this, do not preach, thus they preach. This is what people are saying to Micah. Why don't you just stop preaching? You're not doing any good for us. Let's just stop. Don't preach. Thus they preach. And then, and then he quotes them again. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So these are people who are just flat out denying Micah's message. We're not going to be disgraced. We don't need to shave our heads. We don't need to repent. We don't need to respond. Just, just, just ignore that guy. And then he, he continues in this vein. Look down at verse 11. He says, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. In other words, all these people want is intoxication. All these people want is their own immediate physical pleasure. That's what they want to hear about. That's what they want to be preached to about. They want this quick emotional fix that's going to make them feel better for the moment, but that it really isn't going to solve their problem. And then uh, Micah, he, look at what he says. He, he continues in a similar line. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 and following. Actually, let's start in verse 5. He says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, peace. So this is what people are saying in Micah's day. They're saying, we're not going to be exiled. We're going to have peace. This is the same thing they were saying in Jeremiah's day. Remember Jeremiah? Peace, peace. There is no peace. Same, same message. Who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So these people are just interested in their own appetites. Verse 6, therefore it shall be night to you without vision, darkness to you without divination. What Micah is saying is, because you're rejecting what God is revealing to you, God is going to make it where you don't get any more divine revelation. That's a scary thought. If you reject the word of God, God might just take away the word from you. That's what he's saying here. Look at what he says there in the middle of verse 6. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. So these guys are going to have to stop talking because God is not revealing himself to them anymore. And then Micah says in verse 8, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord. 
and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So you notice here that Micah is saying, these guys that are telling you peace, peace, that he's essentially saying what Jeremiah said, they're lying, and the Lord is going to stop revealing himself to, to them and to everybody that goes their way. Meanwhile, Micah says, I'm filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord is speaking through me, Micah says. So he's faithfully proclaiming the true word of God by the Holy Spirit. Now let me offer you some applications uh, to what I'm saying to you about how Micah's prophecy might have been received in Micah's day. Really, how it might have been rejected at large by most of the people. We need to recognize that Micah is proclaiming a long-term salvation. It's going to be a long time before Jesus is born. I mean, have you thought about this? Micah's, Micah's proclaiming to his day sometime around 700 B.C. And the child referenced in Micah 5.2 is not going to be born until the turn of the ages. Like 700 years from now. It's a long-term salvation. And that doesn't make it irrelevant. That doesn't make it irrelevant. The fact that you don't see the immediate relevance of it doesn't make it insignificant. I mean, I think Micah 5, 2 is one of the most important verses in the Bible, right? And, and it's, like, it's like this seed that goes into the ground, and then what happens? You wait. You wait for the rain to fall and the seasons to roll, and eventually, someday, here comes the shoot. So, long-term salvation, that's application point number one. We, we believers, we're people of patience. That's what we are. We don't draw hasty judgments. We don't conclude, that, I mean, let me encourage you, if you ever hear a boring sermon um, or a sermon that you think is not immediately relevant to your life, let me just encourage you to cling to the Word of God that you hear in that sermon. We, we don't conclude that because we don't see the immediate relevance of something, that means it's not going to be helpful or important or significant, cling to the word of God. Number two here, I think that one way we can respond to this is to be faithful in the present. And in fact, here, I think Micah is really offering his generation how they ought to respond in chapter 6, verse 8. We'll return to this in a moment, but if you look there, Micah says, I mean, I can almost imagine someone saying to him, Micah, you're prophesy prophesying about these things, and it sounds like some of them might be fulfilled in the near future, some of them in the distant future, some of them at the end of all things. And he might say, yeah, that's right. And, and you might say to him, well, what am I supposed to do right now? And he says, he's told you what is good, Micah 6, 8. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and love kindness. That's that word chesed. And walk humbly with your God. That's how you re respond to this. It's a long-term project. So try to do justice. Love chesed. Love the Lord's character. Love the way the Lord is merciful and he's kind and he's steadfast and he's loyal. Love that. And walk humbly with him. That's how you respond. And wait in faith and patience. So Micah's prophecy in Micah's day... And, and um, this is largely about exile, and then uh, 
what's going to happen after exile. And that brings us to this next thing that I want to reflect on you for a moment here, and that's the future glory. And to see this future glory, I'd invite you to look with me at Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And you'll be really familiar with this because this is the same thing that you read in Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4. Micah says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Okay, so we're talking about the end of all things. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Um, You may recall, you may have noticed in your reading of the Bible, that in Ezekiel chapter 28, in verse 14, Eden, the Garden of Eden, is referred to as a mountain. And, And what Micah is doing here is saying, Temple Mount is going to be like Eden was at the beginning. It's going to be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, meaning it'll be the most important place on earth, and all peoples shall flow to it, and many nations, excuse me, shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his way. So everybody's going to know God in this day, and that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion... There at the end of verse 2, shall go forth the law. The law that went forth from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai being replaced by Mount Zion as the place where God is, where God reveals himself, where God communicates his, his word. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then notice this for what we're about to see here in verse 3. He, the Lord, shall judge between many peoples. And shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So Micah is saying a day is going to come when everybody's going to want the Bible. Everybody's going to want God's word. And they're going to realize now that our hearts have been changed. Now that we have no violent impulses toward our neighbors. Now that we recognize that everybody that's still living has no violent impulses toward us, no impulse to steal from us, we don't need these weapons anymore. So we can, we can melt them down and use them for something else because we just don't need locks on the doors anymore. Nobody's got an inclination to break in where they don't need to be. Nobody's got an inclination to take what, they, what doesn't belong to them. Everybody's trustworthy. Everybody loves God and Jesus and everybody loves one another. And so we can reuse these things. And then he continues, neither nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, verse 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Here again, he's using something from the past to point to something from the future. You may remember from 1 Kings chapter 4, in the days of Solomon, when Solomon reigned in wisdom, uh, we read in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25, that at that time, under the the blessed reign of God's anointed king, every man sat under his own vine and under his own fig tree. And, and so the, the image of the blessedness under King Solomon is now projected into the future. And then he continues, and no one shall make them afraid. And this too alludes back because in, in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promised as he was, as he was declaring to David that that he would raise up one of his descendants and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 10, the Lord said, violent men will afflict them no more as formerly. So there's not going to be any more violent people. So everybody's going to be under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. Verse 4, 
for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Do you know what this is saying? This is saying one day life is going to be like it was in the Garden of Eden prior to sin. One day, all the, all the trouble will be over, all the pain will be over, and then it's like Micah is saying, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's promised it. You can count on it. It's going to happen. Your, your best hopes are going to be realized because God has promised it. And then he says in verse 5, For the peoples walk each in the name of his God, its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. There's another application, isn't it? It's like he's saying, look, here's this glorious future that God has promised to you. So what do you do in response? Walk in the name of your God. That's what you do. And then he fleshes that out in 6.8 as we just read a second ago. So we've got this future glory, but we've also got impending doom. Let's keep reading for a couple more verses before we get to the doom. Look at verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. This is this assembling language again, this gathering language again. So this is after exile, after scattering. And these are the people that have been harmed and hurt and lamed by the Lord's justice, the Lord's judgment. He's going to assemble them and gather them up. And those whom I have afflicted, there at the end of verse 6, verse 7, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. You know, when you read about Jesus healing people in the Gospels, he's enacting fulfillment of these verses. And then look at what it says at the end of verse 7. And the Lord, and notice the small caps again, Yahweh, Yahweh will reign over them in Mount Zion. From this time forth and forevermore. So Micah is saying a day is going to come when the Lord is going to be enthroned and he's going to reign and everything is going to be glorious and he's going to bind up those who were harmed. He's going to heal them. The promises continue. Verse 8, and you, O tower of the flock, he's probably talking about Jerusalem here, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, probably referring to the reign, the glorious reigns of David and Solomon, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. But before we get to that, before we get to that future glory, we've got impending doom, and we see that now in verse 9. And look at how the doom is described in verse 9. Micah says, now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? It's interesting, isn't it, that he would ask that question. Is there no king in you? Look at the next, the next statement. Has your counselor perished? And, you know, at the, at the destruction of Jerusalem, when they were taken into exile, they, the, the, the king who was in power, he tried to flee, and they, they captured him, and they blinded him, and then they slaughtered his sons. And there was no king in Jerusalem at that point. And, and so it's like Micah is prophesying of what's going to happen when the king is removed. Has your counselor perished? And then, then he goes on, that pain seized you like a woman in labor. So Micah is speaking of the anguish of the city of Jerusalem. When the temple is destroyed and the people are taken into exile, as though it's birth pains coming upon a woman. 
There's going to be somebody else that's going to talk about birth pains. Jesus is going to do this in John 16, isn't he? And, you know, Jesus is going to come as the king of Israel, and he's going to start talking to his disciples about this, this translations render it differently, this counselor or this comforter. Uh, he's going to talk to them about the Holy Spirit, whom he's going to give to them. It's really interesting to me that Micah asks, uh, now, you know, I don't know what Micah knows. Does he know that... He knows there's going to be a king from David's line. Does he know that Jesus is going to give the Holy Spirit as a comforter for his people or a counselor, we might say, for his people? I, I don't know, but here he speaks of the king, and then he speaks of the counselor, and he speaks of birth pangs. Jesus, in John 16, is going to talk about those same things, the gift of the Holy Spirit, his disciples mourning, but their mourning is going to turn to joy. And then look at verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you. And the word for redeem here is the same term used to describe Boaz's redemption of Ruth. So again, something from the past projected onto the future. So Micah is saying when the city is destroyed, when God's wrath falls... It's going to be like a woman in labor. And then let, let's, let's fast forward now. Look down at, look down at chapter 5 in verse 1 where Micah says, this brings us to the birth of the child. So we've got the future glory and the, the impending doom and the pangs of childbirth and now chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's a really interesting statement, isn't it? With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. I, I'm not sure exactly what Micah has in mind, but the, the immediately previous reference to a judge is in chapter 4, verse 3, when he says, he shall judge between many peoples. And now, what does Micah think? Well, or what is he... What is he really saying I think he's saying we're about to go into exile and our king our king who is our judge is going to be humiliated and shamed and they're going to strike him on the cheek but there's going to be another figure who comes who is struck on the cheek and Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah chapter 50 in verse 6 of this one who says He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And then uh, Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 26. Sorry, Matthew chapter 27, verse 30 that they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And, and I, ultimately, I think that's the, that's the realization of Micah 5.1. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And then he, it, it brings us to verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Why would he say this? Why would he refer to Bethlehem as too little to be among the clans of Judah? Well, the word that's, that's rendered too little here 
is used in some other pretty significant places. One of them is Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, when, when we read back here, um, the Lord communicating to um, Isaac's wife, um, Rebekah, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The word that's rendered the younger there is actually the same word that's used with reference to Bethlehem here. And, I, and, and then there are some other significant places where this, this um, too little is used. And, and I think what, what um, is being communicated is the Lord takes little things. The Lord takes unexpected things. You expect the firstborn, Esau, to be the one who gets the blessing. But it's actually Jacob, and then Jacob's in that line of descent. And this is the way that Lord, the Lord does things. You expect the Messiah to come and be acclaimed, but he's not. He's rejected by the authorities in the establishment. And so, so Bethlehem is like that. Bethlehem's this little town. And it's in this significant place where, where um, this is Bethlehem Ephrathah. This is where, as we read earlier in the service, um, uh, Jacob's beloved life, wife, Rachel, died in childbirth. So death is bringing new life. And then look at, look at the next verse, uh, Micah 5, 3. We'll come back to some of these statements here in verse 2. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. It's as though Micah is saying, look, the coming exile is going to be like the pangs of childbirth. But a baby's going to come through that childbirth. And the baby that's going to come is the one we're looking for, the seed of promise. The one whose birth we've been hoping for since the promise was made in the words of judgment to the serpent back in Genesis 3.15. So the birth of the child, as in so many places in the, in the Bible, the birth of the child signals deliverance. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. This prophesied ruler is going to be the one who's going to make the breach in Micah 5, verses 12 and 13. He's, he's going to be the one through whom the Lord is going to bring about this future glory in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. He's going to be the one who's going to establish the former dominion. And we're told here that his coming forth is from of old. And this particular Hebrew expression, it's interesting, it can, it's used in two ways. One way, it's used to refer to time, from ancient days or something like this. And, um, and there's some really interesting instances of this, like um, uh, Nehemiah 12, 46, long ago in the days of David and Asaph. So you could say that this from of, who's going forth is from of old. Well, he's, maybe he's referring to uh, the promise made to David, but I think it goes back further than that. Uh, because it's immediately stated from of old, from ancient days. And then the other way that this expression is used, this from of old, is to, it, it's, it's often translated when it's used this way, to the east or from the east. It's actually the very, the very Hebrew term that's used in Genesis 2.8 when, when the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. That phrase in the east is exactly the same as from of old. It's, it's one of those expressions that can have different meanings. 
Um, Genesis 3.24, it occurs there. He drove the man out, and at the east, there it's translated at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword. So uh, I think that this expression would not only call to mind, you know, a long time ago, but it would also draw people's minds to those, those events that took place there in Genesis 2 and 3, when the Lord planted a garden, and then when Genesis 3.15 was stated. His, his coming forth is from that ancient promise, from ancient days. And we know that it goes back even further than that. There never was a time when the Lord Jesus was not. So Micah's prophecy is about a long-term salvation that's going to answer the short-term problems. It's, it's urging people to put their hope in God's grand program of salvation, which means we have to lift our eyes up off of our immediate, immediate problems that are, that are right before us. And we have to place our hope in the same child who was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at what it goes on to say here in Micah 5. Therefore he shall give them up until... The time when she who is in labor has given birth. So after the birth pangs, this child is going to come. And then it says at the end of verse 3, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. I think that's re referring to uh, the day when all Israel will be saved, as Paul describes in Romans 11, 26, and 27. And then look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And we know the one who came and said, I am the good shepherd. And, and, you know, thinking back to Micah 2, when, he's, when we have the one who makes the breach, who passes out of the gate, Jesus said, I'm the gate. I'm the door of the sheep. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great. That's quoted in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. This is what God promised in Psalm 2.8. Ask of me and I will give the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. And then look at verse 5, the beginning statement. And he shall be their peace. It's like Micah is directly answering those guys who are saying, Peace! We got a quick fix! We got an immediate solution! I can make your life better right now! This is relevant for you! Micah says, he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. That's where peace is going to be found. So the birth of the child signals deliverance. It signals the long-hoped-for salvation. Look at, look at the last statements of the book of Micah. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Micah's own name is, I think, reflected here. Because in, in Hebrew, mikah means something like, who is like? Look at what he says here, Micah 5, 18. Who is a God like you? It's like he does a wordplay on his own name. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. We passed over this. I didn't get to this. Look, look, back, at, look back at Micah chapter 6. And as I, was, as I was thinking about this, let's start reading in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 
with 10,000 rivers of oil. What he's doing is he's referring to the, the various things that Israel would offer up as sacrifices. And he's saying, look, could I, could I come before God with, with multiplied sacrifices beyond imagination? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of ram, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? I think he's thinking of Abraham probably, but it's also anticipating a firstborn, isn't it? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He's recognizing his sin problem, isn't he? And he's saying, what am I going to do about this? And, and as I was reflecting on this passage I, the other night, uh, Jake's school, they, they sang this song, The Jesus Gift. Shall we gather emeralds? Shall we bring him gold? Shall we shower diamonds, white hard, bright cold? Shall we spangle jewels like stars above? Give him laughter. Bring peace-filled laughter. Offer him warm laughter and love. Simplest of gifts. Gentlest of hearts, kindness he'll use as he leads. So give him these gifts, hand him your heart, honor his birth, and you'll need no emeralds nor rubies, silver nor gold, neither bright diamonds, white hard, bright cold. Spangle not rich jewels like stars above, you'll have laughter, sweet, peace-filled laughter, simple Warm laughter and love. Look at those last words of Micah 7. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity because of what he did through Christ. Passing over transgression. Micah's using all the language of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 here. For the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. It's like what Micah is saying is he uses this term that, that, that refers to a strong hold that somebody takes on something, somebody seizing something. And he says he doesn't seize his anger forever. He lets go of it because he delights in steadfast love, hesed. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. They're gone forever. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Very similar expression there. His going forth is from of old. And, and it's, I think it's connecting his going forth to the promises made in Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12.1-3, reiterated to, to Jacob and so forth. So how do we respond? Well, Micah's giving us response. Look at, what it, look at what he, how he responds to the enemy, how he responds, I think, to the accuser, to Satan. Up in chapter 7, verse 7, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And then it's like he turns to the accuser and he says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is 
the Lord your God. And look, look what's going to happen to the enemy in verse 17. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. On your belly you shall go, and dust will be your food all the days of your life. So how do we apply this? Well, I think we apply it by fixing our hope firmly on the Lord Jesus and cultivating hearts that are able to do what Peter described in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, when he spoke of how those who have not seen him love him and rejoice in him with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray together. Father, there's probably someone here today who doesn't know Jesus, who has an incurable wound, who has transgression that they know they cannot deal with. Lord, I pray that they would look to Christ and be saved. I pray they would hear this message about this child whose birth signals deliverance. I pray they, they would hear this message about how you pardon iniquity and pass over transgression. And I pray, Lord, that you would open their minds to understand the way that the Lord Jesus has satisfied your justice, has carried our transgressions and borne our iniquities. And I pray, Lord, that you'd melt the hard heart and that they would turn to Christ and be saved. Lord, for the rest of us who, Lord, we want things to get better in the immediate future. Help us to see that your word promises that things will get better, but it may not happen immediately. Lord, keep us from, from growing impatient and from giving up. Help us, Lord, to persevere to the end, to, with, with Micah, wait for you, and to know that if we fall, we will rise. That if we must sit in the darkness, you will be our light. Help us, Lord, to be those who cling to these promises. Those who trust your character. And Lord, we want to do justice. We want to love mercy. And we want to walk humbly with you. And we thank you that the child was born in Bethlehem. We thank you that the scriptures were fulfilled in him. And we pray that you'd help us to respond as we should. In Christ's name, amen.